and welcome to the Eastern Kicks podcast, a regular magazine program about East Asian film led by me, Andrew Heskins, founder and grandmaster of EastonKicks.com, and James Mudge, our leading writer. Hey, Each episode, we'll be taking a look at the latest films, news, and festivals, often chatting to filmmakers and stars along the way. Hello, and welcome to our latest show. This episode, we're talking about Changi Mao's latest film, Cliff Walkers. A spy espionage thriller now on release in China, Singapore, US, Canada, Australia and New Zealand. And we'll also take a look back at the director's genre work, which seemed to follow his involvement in the 2004 and 2008 Olympics. While Mark Obetzka, Philip O'Connor and Stephen Palmer share their thoughts on some of Chang Mao's work. But first, we've got to handle that most important question. What are you drinking this episode, James? I'm glad you asked, Andy. <laughs> I'm on the vocation Life and Death, IPA, 6.5%. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> and what about yourself? I will. Um, I'm on Rainbow Healing Temple from Howling Hops. Of course. Uh, export Porter, 6.8. Ah, okay, you win. <laughs> Top trumps. <laughs> well, we're both winners here. Yeah. Always winner. You know what I'm saying? So let's get straight into Cliff Walkers. Mm. Um, tell me about the film, James. Um, I'll tell you, it's not called Shadow Walkers, which I keep trying to call it. <laughs> and it's not called Impasse anymore. It's not called Impasse anymore. That's a good point. Um, Although, at the time of recording, uh, on IMDb, both Impasse and Cliff Walkers are on, mm, on their database. I'm not sure which is... I don't... I mean, Cliff Walker doesn't mean much to me as a name, but it sounds more evocative than Impasse. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, actually. It's um, And I'm not going to try and pronounce it. I, I, yeah. I think that would be a bad idea. <laughs> um, but it, it is interesting that it's, it is quite a close translation Cliff of the China's, okay. Chinese title, which is, uh, roughly translates as Above the Cliff. Which so yeah, which is better than it. it uh, impasse sounds a bit more like a sort of embarrassing faux pas in a restaurant mm. or something like that. You know, or you both order lobster. Mm. Maybe it was an early draft of the script. I'm sure it was. It was a sales agent probably who suggested the idea. But um, but yeah, I mean the film. It's set in like the 1930s in the Japanese occupation of Manchuria. Um, it's one of those things you can't say too much about because it was an espionage film. It's got a lot of twists and turns and everything. But um, kind of begins with four. Uh, Soviet-trained Chinese spies uh, parachute into the snowy wilderness uh, on a very, very secret mission, which, ah, <laughs> damn it, the cat, the, <laughs> worth pointing out, that's the damn Eskins cat attacking, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, there's four of them. Uh, it's a very mysterious secret mission, which doesn't become massively clear until later, and you, you know, you have the, the older guy and his wife, uh, a younger guy and his girlfriend, but they're split off into kind of mismatched couples. Yeah. So they're, they're not, you know, with their other halves and everything. Um, they have to find their way to Harbin by train uh, again in these two different couples and when they get there then everything kind of doesn't quite work out as planned they kind of get separated and they have to try and meet up with resistance group while trying to go through their mission and everything like that while trying to contact each other while staying ahead of the sort of puppet regime secret police and their task force which has been set up to track them down because there is a traitor in the midst mm. who's been feeding information to them and everything so it's um it gradually goes through 
a series of twists as to what the actual mission is and what the you know the relationship between some of the different people in the team is and everything. So can't really say more than that. No, I mean it's it's very in many respects it's it's fine. It's 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 a very classic Cold War yeah. style espionage thriller. It's very straightforward in terms of plotting. I mean, you literally you literally dropped in to the story as it's going. Is it starts with the <laughs> as the the guys are parachuted in to yes. enemy lines, yeah, yeah, you know, and and it just kind of fires straight into it. You know, it's got some yeah. re- really nice set pieces, you know, really yeah, really absolutely. nicely filmed. It's very we'll nice. Kind of talk about that, the way it's presented mm-hmm. as we go along, but you know, it's it's the classical kind of pieces where that people might get caught out on on who they are, yeah. You know, and and uh, you know, hidden messages, coded messages, everything. It's all the kind of classic spy stuff is in there, and everything like that. But I mean, you're right with with the plot. I think that's one of the interesting things. But I think it's one of those things where you assume it's more complicated than it is, and you mm. can, you kind of keep. I mean, when I was watching it, you know, I I was thrown off slightly for the first half an hour, mm. partly because of that, because you kept thinking, "Am I supposed to understand there's something more going on to this or everything like that?" Yeah. But there kind of isn't, and also because, the you know, for all the scenes in the snowy stuff at the start, they're wrapped up in furs and stuff, and you can't really see their faces very well. I found that that know? was that was kind of, but they kind of lost me because, you know, actually a pretty good class in there, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, and, and nicely acted, but. It's very. It, it takes you a while to get up to speed because you haven't mm-hmm. seen the cast properly. Yeah. <laughs> while they've been wrapped up. And I did wonder. I mean, I, I, that's one, an interesting question. I guess is how much on purpose that is or anything. I don't know because, maybe for Chinese viewers, they would know the cast, uh, so they maybe recognize them the voice more easily. Us for, but for us, like kind of watching it, um, all the scenes in the forest and everything like that, mm. uh, in the first twenty minutes, and there are even in the first twenty minutes, there's a few character reversals or you know plot twists and stuff, which are. Are quite effectively handled at the start. There's a, a quite nice turnarounds and sequences mm-hmm. there, but they're a bit more. I found them a little bit confusing because at that stage I still wasn't entirely sure who was who. At that stage, not in kind of a motivational way, I just yeah. genuinely wasn't <laughs> sure what was going on and everything. Yeah, you know, but it's not really. It I mean, probably didn't help that actually we were we were kind of limited in in terms of. Of, of seeing this as a screener. Well, that's true. It's small and screen. also, yeah. um, if one thing is gonna be is, is gonna affect the quality, it's it's a mm. a snowy scene with lots of you know, <laughs> true. you know, it's, a, it's a, it was a, a medium res kind of copy of it, true, but true. trying to handle all those snowflakes, which are real snowflakes, and I think we'll come on to that in yeah, a second yeah, as well. Yeah. Um, it does give you. Yeah, yeah, right. Mm. Low resolution, quite a lot to handle, and, and like, <laughs> oh, what's happening? Well, I did read that. I did read that in a few other reviews. After you know, I, I checked through a few other things, so I wanted to a little bit to make sure I wasn't being stupid. But I saw that in a few other English language reviews of the film uh, as well. So, it, just interesting as to whether or not that that is on purpose, just taking its time, so, you know, setting you off balance. Mm. I'm not. I don't think it is, to be honest. But as as you say, like the plot itself, there's. There's kind of a surprising lack of plot to it when you really get down to it. Most of it is just moving the characters around, like you know. You know, I'm I'm going to sound like an old man though. I do feel like that's very <laughs> true of, of of modern films in general. That that, that there yeah. really isn't much to them, and you think, hang on. <laughs> I think in this case though, especially like you know, to be honest with it, being a Chinese film about the Japanese occupation mm. period with the puppet state and stuff like that. I mean, it's not. 
either is sort of massively nationalistic and jingoistic as something like the 800. And that's what I wanted to bring up yeah. as well, was because it does feel like, in comparison with some of these other films, yeah. you're right, it's not very heavy-handed. That whole kind of politics of it is actually left to almost literally kind of rubber stamping it with title exactly. cards Absolutely. at the beginning and the end of the yeah, film. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, whereas a lot of other directors, you know, a lot of films we've seen recently have, have really played up to that. Absolutely. This is all about the espionage and yeah. really having fun, really, you know, even though it's quite a grim scenario, really having fun <laughs> yeah. with the way that this is filmed uh, you know, and, and totally the situations. Yeah. And actually... You know, despite that kind of confusion, those scenes are really, really well filmed. I think you know, it's, it's. I like the way that you know, there's there's a bit of a high speed car chase, but it's actually it's done at realistic sort of nineteen thirties car chase speed. Scenes yeah. you're thinking they're not really going that fast, and they are driving on snow as well. But it's it's it is actually still very tense. The, the kind of yeah. way that that tension is kind of mm. brought through. It's actually a real shame not to see this on the big screen. I would have loved it, yeah, yeah, yeah. because it is a very, you know, it's very, very, it's a very, very well-made film in that sense. Yeah, as you say, I mean, it's a really, really set-piece-oriented film, everything, and even like later when you kind of know more about what the mission is, it doesn't matter all that much or anything like that. It's all about putting characters in jeopardy, putting characters in like different choices, and then throwing in the action scenes. You know, we get a few shootouts in there, we get a few chase scenes, all beautifully shot. You know, even when they get into the city in Harbin, it's just snowing the whole time, everything. So you get this mix of like snow, shadow, neon, everything like that. So it's, I think that's one of the, and that's one of the main things I took from it. Was just it was such a cinematic film more than anything. And I, I thought I actually, as it went on, I quite appreciated the lack of plot, kind of in a mm. way. You you're just focusing on this like cat and mouse chess game stuff. Yeah, like that. I thought that was much more effective. There's there's not the melodrama. It doesn't even have, thank God, it doesn't have like too, too many like teary scenes or sort of long drawn out yeah. scenes of somebody yeah. swearing allegiance to their country. And there's a couple of like little subplots and stuff about, you know, some of the characters' backstories, but even that's really underplayed. I, thought, I, thought, I mean, that's the one point, well, one of the, the, the aspects that I thought was, was quite clunkily done is that there is this subplot about the, the, the older couple who, kids. who have yeah, kids yeah. that they've had to leave behind because that's where they, they came from and then they're trying mm. to find them. And I could see why it was done because it makes these characters human, which I think is really important in a, yeah. a spy structure. So they, mm-hmm. these are these are couples. They are, you know, they 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 are real human beings. They're not people who've been spies. I, do, I didn't like, understand why they split them up. If I'm being honest, that was an odd thing because they just makes like old you know old dude, very young girl, yeah. older woman, young guy. I didn't I didn't quite get that part and everything. But you know, even beside that, yeah. I thought it, it, that aspect. And the way it's done, in the film was done. It is very clunky the way it's done. That film. part is, uh, yeah, you yeah, know. No, but actually, right. I, I can see why they did it, and I, I, you know, I'm not sure of another way of doing it. I don't know. The, the yeah. being as brief with how you you portray these these characters and bring that humanity to them, but it, it was it was just it was just clunky. But I don't think it would have lost anything if they cut that <laughs> kind of part to it. To be, I mean, you're right. I can. I think that's why they did it, but. I don't think it was necessary. It doesn't slow, mm. it doesn't slow the film down. There's a few no. unnecessary scenes, but there's just no emotional impact to that side of it. I mean, like you say, it's quite clunky and stuff. Mm. But it, but the way it's filmed, you know, it's, yeah, it, you know, I mean, I think it's, as as you you know did a review on Eastern Kicks you did for us, it's, it has got that Hitchcock yeah definitely. kind of style to it. Absolutely, you know, and it some parts of the soundtrack sort of trigger that as well when you're watching some of the scenes in the alleyways and stuff like that and everything. 
Another interesting thing about the soundtrack mm. is that yeah, it's very kind of classical sounding soundtrack, but it yeah. is by uh, Choi Young Wook, who is responsible for Old Boy. Oh, really? And, and lots oh, of, and this is one of his early steps into any films outside of Korea. I believe. That's interesting. I didn't know because some of his stuff is a bit um, you know Hitchcocky and stuff as well, and other films. That's mm. quite interesting. That, that tags in there and stuff, but complete diversion there. But no, no, no. It's very. It, it is. It is. You know. Again, it's it's, it's the, the way that these are done. Very classical. Very very nicely done. A lot of the third attention. man in there and stuff. Yeah, as well, exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, I think there's a lot of Johnny Toe in there mm. um, as well. I mean, I mean, it's kind of harsh. Not harsh, but it's a weird thing saying for someone so experienced as see Jang Yimou, who's been in the industry since whenever, but. I think some of the, especially some of the the the, the action scenes and everything that when they come, you get the snow and the neon and everything mm. that, and the stylishly dressed characters. You know, when they go to the city, they kind of switch the furs. They're still wearing big coats, but it's, <laughs> everyone's in black and they've got the black hats. It's very nice costumes, but uh, some of the stuff reminded me of Johnny Toe in a good way. I mean, that you can that that's by no means a criticism of the film. So, because it's just the right side of being, it's not hyper stylized. It's just the right side of kind of being stylized it's not like road to perdition yeah. everybody's got their head down you can't see their face type stuff I think when we talk about his other stuff as well, it is quite interesting to see how he grabs these quite extreme mm. style aspects yes. and, and um, yeah, coming out of his increasingly um, Barockian kind of <laughs> you know of costume design. Yeah, you know where the, where the saturation on the colors was 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 ramped up like yeah. with each film. So you've got the Curse of the Golden yeah, Flower. Yeah. And, um, you know, even up into things like the Great Wall, like the colours, mm. you know, there's so many colours, you know, and it's almost like in the last few years, he's actually yeah. just brought that, you know, literally with Shadow, which was entirely <laughs> black and white, virtually, yeah. Um, in terms of monochrome, but but the but the the, the scale of that production design is is mm. it's no less than in his other films. Yeah, absolutely, and for this one as well, like, you know, reading some of the handy press notes we were given and stuff like uh but all the set design like rebuilding these sets for specifically you were shot up in harbin and stuff you know rebuilding like the hotel the cinema and everything really? wow uh and i like i like the cinema aspect of it. i think that's one of the parts which is slightly underplayed uh not on purpose mm. there's a nice undercurrent of cinema references and yeah. stuff whether it's the events taking place around the cinema you know so classic for kind of a sort of cine literate spy thriller of like mm. we're meeting outside the cinema like making little marks on the cinema showing you know on the cinema like timetable and stuff like that and there's a lot of I mean I don't like Charlie mm. Chaplin but there's the Chaplin references yeah. in there people watching film it's I really love there is, that there, is a, there is definitely a joy of cinema in this absolutely that's I love it on. it's uh I, I think that's something which is 
notched it up for me a, a bit because it's it's not it's completely not like meta, mm. thankfully or anything. But there is those definitely sort of cinephile cinephile love in there. One reference I thought which occurred to me, um, and I don't know if it was actually deliberate, but in uh, and, and I'm trying to do this in a way that doesn't include any spoilers, but will <laughs> no doubt give you a bit of a clue, but is that actually in this sort of post-title sequence, actually really reminded me of the end of The the Departed, which is quite an interesting loop. And we can't really talk about it without well, no, kind I of explaining I, no, what I, I mean. Remember the, I've only seen The Departed once mm. and I despised it, so... Well, me too. Not as a remake, just because I don't like Scorsese. <laughs> <laughs> but it is interesting because it, it it does feel something very similar happens at the end of the party in a, in a very similar okay. way. I don't right. know if that was deliberate, but it does feel. But it, that is a quite a circular little motion going on there between could be Asian just, and Western film. Just don't remember um, the Departed, but I mean, but that's something Jiang Yimou's always been I know, sometimes praised for, sometimes criticised for mm. in China is the fact that his films do. Re- seem to like reference and lean upon Western influences more, and present what some people would call like a more Western idea of China, and say some other directors actually do. Whether you, whether it's like you know Golden Flower, uh, Curse of the Golden Flower, or Hero and stuff, where it's like an exoticized Oriental idea, you know, Orientalist mm. idea of China, or or it's actually doing a remake of a or, Western film, yeah, which we'll come onto. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I think he operates in that slightly different space. And mm. I think Cliff Walker's definitely. Is in that space, mm. film, which has like Western influences, still very, very Chinese in its character. I mean, it reminded me of like uh, old Spielberg, you know, Bridge of Spies and stuff. Yeah, uh, and well. and the other obvious reference here is, of course, uh, uh, Kim Ji Woon's uh, Age of Shadows. It's much, I, it's much better than that. I mean, if you were if you wanted to give a really uh, a backhanded compliment to this film, the tagline <laughs> would be Age of Shadows done well. <laughs> Age of Shadows is such a boring. Boring, drawn out film and everything. And this does have a pace to it. it this does. It really, it really it does. does. And that's what we, I guess we're saying about the story and stuff as well. Because essentially, once you actually accept that there's not a massive amount to the story and you're just watching these nicely sort of tense orchestrated set pieces play out and the character of manipulation is actually fun, mm. you know, compared to something like Age of Shadows, which is so convinced of its own intelligence and. Mm, yeah, but and plays out some very similar scenes on trains and stuff. Does, but that is a very some, classic Hitchcock. Yeah, kind so of that's that. the Hitchcock it's, it's size. A, yeah. I mean, I don't think that's so much Age of Shadows, but there is the that the earlier Chinese film, the two thousand nine one, The Message, mm. um, which it does have quite a lot of similarities with. Um, doesn't have as much torture as The Message. The Message, I remember, surprising me. It had a lot of tor- like. <laughs> this, I mean, it, Cliff Walker's has quite a lot of torture in it, but this mm. The Message has like. <laughs> The torture in this reminded me of the Princess Bride. I have to say, that's what. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. You're right. There's a bit of that. <laughs> but the violent, the violence in Cliff Walkers is quite surprising for for this kind of film. It's yeah. quite. It's a lot of like. Yeah. You know, yeah. proper like bloody beatings yeah. and thrashings and Definitely. shootings and everything. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And not much bad CGI, which is a very big plus side for this kind of Chinese well, film. Well, I mean, you know, one bit fact- in the car, one car scene, mm. you can see it, it goes CGI. But apart from that, it's not bad. You know, but a part of this is is that it was filmed in sub zero freezing minus forty wow. degrees, and you know, and, and it's it is nice to see real snow in a film. Absolutely, actually, huge you, you difference. Can see right? it. It's you like can proper, really see it. <laughs> it's proper like spies like us time and everything like that. You know, Chevy Chase, Dark Man. It's proper old school snow, and you're right. Compared to like seeing these films where somebody's stepping on the fake snow, and you hear some like sound dubbed on crunching noise and stuff, <laughs> you can tell this looks. 
cool, man. Oh yeah, and God, you can see how the you know the characters are actually kind of really struggling <laughs> to get through proper snow. <laughs> it's uh, and that's. Mm. I think one of the, the things about this film as well, uh, we've said like a lot of cinema in there, but there is a, it does feel there's a proper sort of craftsmanship yeah. to this film. I think yeah. more than some of his other some of his other stuff, this does feel like, and I'm not sure of the history of like how he came to the film or the script or how mm. it was decided, but it does feel like something which he was invested in. Yeah, you know? and it's also I mean it's interesting to see that the the cinematographer on it is Xiao Xia Ding who has worked on a lot of his previous films quite a, you know m- most of his films in the last couple of decades uh, with the same cinematographer yeah 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 I mean I, I'm not I mean I, I'm not as familiar with his work because I you know I, I know his name but um, mm. but yeah he visually in, there, there is kind of a link between the, the visuals of the film and the plot of the film mm. everything which is sometimes you don't see with some of these kind of you bring like a cinematographer for a new project, which maybe the director hasn't worked with with work. Whereas everything about this film does feel quite tight, yeah. And everything, but I I think that's and that's been the case with a lot of Zhang Yimou stuff. Even some of the stuff I'm not as keen on. Um, the only times where it's not been was you know, uh, House of Flying Daggers, where, where I felt it was needlessly opulent <laughs> <laughs> in places, and I didn't feel that one. I didn't like that film at all, but. Um, I think in a lot of his films, you know, they, they do seem quite uh, that that this is what I mean. This kind of level of craftsmanship. It is definitely. I mean, and I think we, we've already kind of spoken about this, but it, but it is everything is kind of connected. The the look of the film, mm. the look of the production, you know, yeah. the way that it's filmed. There is definitely an idea that that it's it's all one. Yeah. One thing that it's 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 not. He's not skimping on the, I mean, he's never skimping on the production, but the production is always very distinctive. The style of photographing it, which is interesting because these films, you know, they don't, you could, they could easily be done by different cinematographers. It's yeah, not like you yeah. look at it and you go, you would immediately think it's the same person yeah, yeah. filming it. Um, I mean, they're all very solidly done, but you wouldn't necessarily go because the the actual the style of the films is always very appropriate to the to what he's. What he's trying to do, yeah, and that's gonna comes up. We said before, it's just the right. It's the right side of being stylized. Mm. Everything, everything of everything in this film does sort of serve the, not the plot, but the choreography of the narrative. Um, you know the way things move forward in these kind of jumps and stuff. So, which is it's great. I didn't I didn't quite understand why it had those chapter headings mm. as it goes through it, but I suspect that might be a language thing. You know, I you know they're subtitled, but. I didn't think some of those were. In, I didn't really understand some of them, to be honest with you. It's not a criticism, but it's just talking about the construction of the film. Yeah, it does go through kind of phases and stuff, which I thought were very clear anyway. I didn't mm. think those chapter headings were necessary. Things again, like, that feels like a bit of a style thing. Maybe he was trying to I do think it's style. Maybe it was yeah. you know trying to kind of bring a bit of the almost like the serial bit of Tarantino, maybe maybe a bit Tarantino, yeah. maybe the whole kind of. I mean, in terms of the serial, not necessarily the sort of serial radio plays mm. or. Um, yeah, the 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 episodes of the you know, of of, yeah. of of Rocket Man, that kind of thing. Or maybe it was partly that, but also you know you, you would or have the serialization of novels in or of some you know, like in, propaganda in programs and things like that. <laughs> I, no, I'm kind of being facetious with that. I, I think it's more I, because of the cinema angle. I think it's more of a Tarantino type thing. Mm. Well, that's what I, I don't know. From my point of view, I guess as a Western audience, that's with so much of the film taking place around this partly around the cinema, that kind of threw back a bit to me to like Inglorious Bastards and stuff. 
in a nice, you know, in a similar, not a taller rip-off way, but just a similar way of having a cinema kind of as a focal point mm. for, for like an espionage, yeah, you know, kind of without saying what happens kind of thing, everything. And it, it kind of operates in a similar space to that. So having these kind of like chapter headings popping up for no reason. Because I don't, I don't understand why Tarantino uses them sometimes either, apart from just because he's, he can. Yeah. You know? But I think it was along the same lines as that. But you're right, it could be a throwback to the old, especially if it's a throwback to some of the old Chinese stuff and everything mm. as possible. But, um, but the narrative is, yeah, it's served by the cinematography, the action. There's no action scenes which are superfluous in there. There's none of the, the violence is in there because in there there's a lack of melodrama. So, yeah, I, I was... I don't want to say pleasantly surprised because in, in general, like he's a director who's one of those ones who's always going to be interesting to watch something of. Mm. So, but I, yeah, I enjoyed it. And like you said, I wish I could have seen it on a big screen, you know. And I don't know, maybe we'll get a chance later in the year. Probably not, but <laughs> you never know. I guess we're saying. Because I think this was the kind of film, like if I'd been able to play like a Berlin or a Cannes, I think it might have done okay. Specifically because of that sort of cinema, cinematic yeah, angle yeah, to it. Yeah. These European festivals love that kind of like cinephile referencing and stuff. And I think this would. Well, that's why Hong Sang Soo always gets applauded, <laughs> etc., etc. <laughs> so I think it, I think it, it's it's a shame for it because I yeah. don't. This is you know we we were chatting before about how this is maybe not as likely to come out you know so well at the Chinese box office uh, compared to other mm. films at the moment. And we were just we've just seen it came. It didn't top the Chinese box office over the weekend. Um, it's I think it if it had played some festivals and stuff like that European festivals and stuff it would have had a, a bigger chance of doing well and stuff because I think it leans mm. more it, it's an interesting film in that respect so I think it does lean in, it doesn't pander to the international audience at all but I think it leans into a mixture of different tastes you know, kind of in that mm. respect it's not necessarily one for <laughs> for the kids whether it's <laughs> whether it's Western kids or like young Chinese audiences in that respect it is like a more mature audience film both in terms of the sort of cinematic aspects, the plot, the violence in it, everything like that. So it's quite a, it's a bit of a, a different film, for a sort of mainstream Chinese commercial film, which it still is. Yeah. Compared to other ones I've seen over the last, I don't know, good year or so. I yeah. think it's pretty different in that respect. So, it'd just be it would be great to see more, films kind of coming like this from China, which were, focused on these sort of cinematic aspects rather either than lowest common denominator stuff or my patriotism stuff and i would say exactly the same thing about hollywood films it'd be, mm. it'd be nice to see more of this kind of craftsmanship in commercial cinema films. i'm not even going to say from british films because british films are <laughs> shit anyway but you know what i mean though this actually feels like a cinema fans film in that respect so in that i can't see it doing massively well in China and mm. I think it would have this film really would have benefited and not just in China but I mean, we couldn't have released it here because of COVID and cinema closures but if this film had like been able to go to even just say Berlin something like Venice maybe it would probably yeah. been a good fit for Venice you know and played there I think it would have been pretty well reviewed as I think it has been everywhere and then would have had a nice international rollout and stuff so it is kind of a shame I think yeah I, I it's you know it's a shame for us not seeing the big screen it's yeah. a shame if it doesn't if it, if it gets becomes like a minor entry in his CV and stuff, that's a shame. Fung, 
，我都没有跟他好好告别。出来！应该当他已经死了。So that kind of brings us naturally into talking about his、mm. his work in more general. Um, and you know, we'll say here we we are. Really limiting it to his work over the last decade, <laughs>、yeah. because yeah. if we were trying to cover everything from、mm. right back from his his beginnings, we need another two or three podcasts, wouldn't we? Really? Yeah, and we don't really need people don't really need another sort of bio. He was born, and he did. You know, he, <laughs> he's part of the, getting into the fifth gener- generation directors and stuff. And but I, I, think I mean, it gets that, that is. I mean, I guess. I mean, the only thing about that is, I guess you could say that that is partly his aspect for his is is. Looking towards international cinema is that, of course,、mm. all his early films had to look towards international cinema because、mm-hmm. this stuff existed before. Yeah, there was. But I mean, we we're thinking about how to kind of classify his stuff over the last decade, where he's really dipped in and out of lots of different genres. Absolutely, and and、yeah. kind of just it, it felt a bit like it kind of follows his his progression into first being involved with the. Uh, Beijing portion of the two thousand and four Summer Olympics、mm-hmm. um, in Greece, and then of course you know grandstanding the opening and closing ceremonies for the two thousand and eight Summer Olympics. So I think kind of、yeah. you know we we can all say it's kind of taken that that that、um, the style of what people expect from Olympic ceremonies <laughs> to a whole other level. Absolutely, you know、yeah. I I I feel you know I think about some of the stuff he was doing then definitely in terms of a curse of the golden flower. Yeah, yeah.、Um, and you know, just looking at those leagues and leagues of 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 people that just sort of come out of nowhere、yeah. in those armies. You know, at that point, as we were saying before, the very baroque、yes. costume、yeah. design, very yellow, of course.、Mm-hmm. Um, again, we've got very kind of big style yellows and oranges all kind of through、mm-hmm. that.、Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it, it felt like a bit of a. It did feel like an audition reel for this is how I'm going to do <laughs> the Beijing Olympics. <laughs> Stephen Palmer. I'm guessing it must have been around 2010, 2011, when I was in Portugal, hunting around for something to eat after a long day of holiday making. I remember finding a large, albeit empty, Chinese restaurant somewhere in the Algarve, one of those buffet-style affairs where you know it might not be a gourmet experience, but there'll be something for your fussy young children to gorge themselves on. I have no idea or memory of what we ate that day. I'm not really sure of the date. I couldn't tell you what town we're in, but what I can remember was that on the big television that dominated one wall was playing a DVD that was showing something completely out of context with the locale and the date: the 2008 Olympic opening ceremony. And we sat there with our plates piled high with slightly overdried buffet food and never-ending colas. We sat there and pretty much watched it in silence. The opening ceremony of the Olympic Games is one of those unique events that people watch in their millions, and is used by the host country to basically sell themselves. Yes, the sport over the following weeks is important, as is the morale boost it can give the national psyche. But that opening ceremony, it says, "This is our country, and you should come visit us when this is all over." And over the years, they've mutated from marching bands and dancing girls into full-on shows, colourful displays of a country's identity, decoded by international commentators with a script to explain just what everything means, like a modern-day operatic libretto. And in my fiftieth year, 
I remember a few of these. I remember the rocket man touching down in Los Angeles. I remember the flaming arrow that lit up the torch in Barcelona. And through the magic of Ken Ichikawa's astonishing documentary Tokyo Olympiad, I saw a country reintegrate itself with the world after the horrors of the Second World War. But 2008 in China, things stepped up another level. Under the guidance of director Zhang Yimou, a cast of literal thousands put together a show that showcased China, both past and present. I won't step through it moment by moment, but a spectacular display was unveiled to the audience at 8pm local time on the 8th day of the 8th month in the 8th year of the second millennium. With 8 being such an auspicious number in Chinese culture, you can be guaranteed this was all part of the plan. Hosted in one of the most spectacular and unique stadiums in the world, the events in the bird's nest captivated the world for four hours with drumming, dance, music at the forefront of a colourful advertisement for what China had given to the world and maybe what it proposes to give in the future. And a little more context here. China, certainly in the guise of the People's Republic of China, had only taken part in the Summer Olympic Games since 1984. When a veteran of that first game from modern China, gymnast Li Ning, was raised up to the very rim of the bird's nest and appeared to run around the stadium hundreds of metres high, ending up lighting the Olympic torch, we all gasped. We all remember. Sure, there were controversies. There was the little girl who it turned out was miming to another less photogenic girl's voice. The fact most volunteers are members of the conscripted army. The use of CGI for international broadcasters to ensure that fireworks were displayed suitably. And of course the tragedy of performer Liu Lian, who tragically was paralysed from the waist down after a fall during practice a couple of weeks earlier. We also have to remember that Zhang is also a director who has been accused of being a little too close to the Chinese authorities in recent times, and maybe the ceremony gave him some political cachet. And maybe, well maybe we demand a little more of our creatives. The event was overseen by a very specific version of Zhang Yimou. This is contemporaneous with movies like Hero, with House of the Flying Daggers, with The Curse of the Golden Flower. This is Yang at his most visual, at the peak of his use of colour and movement. It was a perfect storm of event and opportunity. At the end of the day though, whatever criticisms I can lay at the door of the ceremony, it achieved exactly what it was intended to achieve. It celebrated and sold China to the world, not only to the international public, but to the immense Chinese diaspora. Remember those owners of that Chinese restaurant in Portugal? This event made them proud. So, so proud. For sure. And those were kind of a sort of logical peak, I guess, kind of to build. If that, you know, we had those hero, you know, flame daggers, curse of the golden flower and stuff, you know, then the Olympic stuff. So you've kind of taken that pretty much as far as it can go, certainly, you know, for the time being and stuff in terms of numbers of extras, the sort of set pieces of choreography the colors the the visuals of it and stuff so so absolutely it's not really a surprise i guess for you know the last 10 12 years or so that 
he has been trained at changing genres, trying different things, smaller scale, larger scale, everything. And it's quite interesting what he gets into as well. I think, you know, so the, the first film that comes up, you know, that he's sort of dipping in and out of Hollywood in a sense. He has, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, so we, the first one that comes up is, is a woman, a gun, and a noodle shop, um, a.k.a. Chang your mouth. Blood simple, yeah. aka I think China was just it was just a simple noodle story or something like that, or mm. the translation was so. A lot of different names for. I mean, you can I guess you can kind of see why just because it is basically a remake of Blood Simple, uh, but technically it makes sense to brand it that for some Western viewers because calling you know woman gun noodle shop mm. sounds just more like a, a wacky comedy. Yeah, and everything and there is a bit more comedy in it and stuff, but it, it's it was a very interesting move. For mm. him to go from you know, uh, so I guess Curse of the Golden Flower was his last film before that technically. Um, there's about three four years between them, so it, it was a very interesting choice because it's a much smaller scale production in that respect, and it, it is you know it's a very interesting sort of take on that sort of noir genre and everything. Yeah, and taking that sort of mm. almost taking that kind of the the, the Wuxia historical kind of yeah. slant on it yeah, and yeah. just making it a very you know. And and reenacting some of the, I mean, he, he did very. There were a few moments that really kind of slavishly follow the Coen brothers. Yeah, yeah, you know, absolutely. but just put a really, really different slant on them by just the the context. It was, I mean, in hindsight, it, you know, it's it's a it is actually a very interesting mm. take on it all. It's really quite sure, and I'm not sure. I mean, I have to be honest, I'm not sure how it was received in China uh, mm. when it was released or how well it does because that's. You know, going back at that stage, you, you know, I just remember the UK and Western release of it and stuff. But it, it was quite a, it was a, I don't want to say surprisingly good, but it was a, it, it was kind of a bit left field mm. at that point. I was very surprised when I watched it. I mean, I got the, the press screener disc with Young Yimo's Yimo, Blood Simpler as well and stuff. Like that, yeah. Which was, you know, uh, I don't know, I'm never very happy at those kind of marketing, marketing establishments. But, uh, you felt a little bit heavy handed, uh, but, you know. This, this, it's not it's not the worst retitling we've seen of uh, an Asian <laughs> film in lesbian <laughs> vampire killers yeah uh-huh. uh, to name but one but you know <laughs> we, there, there's, there's, both in the UK and in the US there's some really bizarre retitling of, of, of Asian films my, the, by certain companies my favourite probably still the most bizarre ones they've been trained to trained to present presents it's, it's not even a retitling it's just a grammatical nightmare <laughs> uh, but it's a good it's a good film though and you're right it's an it's an interesting and probably quite conscious choice i guess both to move away from these sort of giant blockbusters and stuff like that and also to you know maybe to as a cinema who's as a filmmaker sorry who's always had this kind of uh, association with more international cinema maybe than some of certainly than some of the others say of the fifth generation um i mean maybe maybe chiang kai Ge, i mean his Killing me softly and stuff, remaining a high point of <laughs> unwatchable but funny cinema. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, I think Zhang Yimou more than others has been associated with international stuff. So it's, it's a very interesting choice to have done what what is you know is definitely a remake, but not a remake necessarily. Sometimes in like the the Western sense, because mm. uh, it was a complete update. It was taking the bones of the plot, but completely yeah. transplanting them, transplanting the characters, yeah. obviously the language. The setting, everything. So it was. It, it's a film which I, I get. Like some of his, some of his films just seem to slip through the cracks of it in terms of his CV, and I think that's kind of one of them which people don't seem to mention or talk about as much because it, it's probably because his big films are so big and they become so popular. Yeah. Some of his other smaller ones, um, 
pretty much don't get what they deserve. Yeah, uh, and it's a shame because it's definitely, you know, compared to some of his more melodramatic ones, everything which you know it's like some of the ones which came after that, like um, Under the Hawthorn Tree and stuff like mm. that, which were not at all bad films and stuff, but it's such a shift between this and then them and everything, which were much more. I think it's fair to say kind of aimed still at the domestic market in that respect and I, I don't know I remember uh, old Feng Xiaogang uh, talking very bitterly when he was at the BFI an interview saying he was very annoyed with the way Chinese audiences seem to like receive some of his films very well uh, and they'd be massive box office and the other ones would be like and they just completely fail um, <laughs> and sometimes I wonder like whether you know this kind of like switching around of genres and stuff for Zhang Yimou is is even partly tied into this kind of like box office success thing in China because the box office in China is so much it's even more competitive than uh, in the West and everything like that so some of these films like flopping I mean perceived as flopping put it that mm-hmm. way um, so whether or not you see like something like you know Zhang Yimou's Blood Simple then going to something much safer like and much more low budget like Under the Hawthorne Tree <sighs> then he was off to Hollywood with well, not off to Hollywood, but, you know, the Hollywood style and Flowers of War. Mm. There's such an up and down of his choices and budgets yeah. and everything yeah. like that. It's, it's a really, really interesting pattern. I'm Maya Kurbecka, and I will be talking about The Road Home, 1999 Zhang Yimou film. Zhang is one of the filmmakers who definitely had his ups and downs. And his career is one of the best examples of constant navigation between the party line, the expectations of domestic audience um, and international audience and film festivals on the other hand. The Road Home is uh, somewhere in between art and mainstream cinema. It is definitely different from his uh, late 80s and early 90s ethnographic films as uh, described by Zhang uh, in Jin away from the sexualized, woman-centered stories that um, also worked as national metaphors. The Road Home is closer to his blockbuster films uh, that came with uh, hero and many historical epics um, afterwards. And um, The Road Home is one of the early films that uh, set aside both domestic and international markets. Uh, the reviews were really good, and um, it was awarded the jury prize at Berlinale in 2000, as well as um, three Golden Rooster Awards. So uh, it is um, Chinese national um, awards for um, filmmaking uh, that it's granted more um, from the side of industry and professionals rather than uh, the public. The Road Home is based on a novel written by Bao Shi, um, who adapted the screenplay from uh, his book Remembrance. And it's again one of the examples how Chinese cinema cannot really break free from literature, or at least uh, it couldn't in the films of the fifth generation. The Road Home is a very classic melodrama in um, it pictures a very very nostalgic view of Chinese countryside and um, I don't have anything against melodramas because it can be one of the most progressive one of the most revolutionary genre in a way or a film mode uh, but in this uh, 
in this case it is definitely very very conservative and um, just uh, very much concerned with family issues and uh, with the way the family structure changed during the 90s. The whole story is told in retrospect by the son of a couple who lived in the countryside for their whole lives. Um, so the story follows a young man uh, who is sent to a small village to teach at the elementary school. And uh, in there he meets a young um, girl and they fall in love. And uh, throughout the film there are many uh, objects or many motives that are signs of uh, their affection and it, it is never really direct. Um, so the, the girl for example is waiting by the road that leads uh, to the village and she constantly awaits the return of the young teacher who had to go to the city temporarily to, to take care of some issues before the marriage. Um, and the young teacher during his time in the village is fed by the local families. So there is um, obviously a lot of scenes of uh, eating and food is, is being treated as expression of affection. And there is again uh, the red color of the girl's coat. And I've seen this film around one year ago and uh, I suppose it just uh, dawned on me that it can be compared very very well with uh, Yellow Earth actually because um, a lot of scenes, a lot of motifs, both of these films have in common. But actually The Road Home is, looks like a, a rectified version of the story presented in Chen Kaiga's film. So the young teacher outsider actually comes back to the village on time and they live uh, happily ever after. From today's perspective, The Road Home is not really an important title in uh, Johnny Mo's filmography, but maybe that's why it is interesting to talk about it. The film is definitely remembered for being uh, Zhang Ziyi's debut on screen, and Zhang Yimou did everything to promote his new star. Zhang Ziyi is definitely very much different from Gong Li, uh, she's more girlish, more innocent and pure, at least that was her initial employ in The Road Home. And Zhang did everything to promote his new star. Um, I remember The Road Home as a film where there is a constant scene of Zhang Ziyi running through golden fields. And again and again in her red coat. And one of the very good reasons to see The Road Home is actually to notice how the internationally renowned filmmaker as uh, Zhang Yimou, how his films can be uneven and how from today's perspective they actually got really old. But The Road Home can be turned into a very very good cult movie. And these scenes of Zhang Ziyi running through the fields can actually be turned into a very good drinking game. The Road Home can be just watched as a product of its time, which actually fits very interestingly into the overall history of Chinese cinema. So, I mean, The Thousand War is definitely his first step into, I mean, it is a Chinese production, but yeah. uh, getting off, yeah, Hollywood mm -hmm. people doing a lot of the, 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 a lot of the film in English. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, I think for me, I, I just remember it coming quite soon after City of Life and Death. Yes, exactly. Which one. Yeah. And then the extremes there didn't mm-hmm. work, but it was very, again, you know, the costume design was absolutely yeah. immaculate. Um, and, and I think, I mean, we even say the same thing about Great War, when you think about all the other attempts there are to mm-hmm. do this sort of, Hollywood star, you know, get a Hollywood star <laughs> yeah. into a Chinese film. In comparison, these films aren't actually anywhere near as 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 um as bad as as what lots of other people have, I, have no, done. I I agree. I mean, Flower, as you say, I, I think the main Flowers of War is not by any means a a, a bad film, and it, no. and you have these differences, and we'll we'll talk about the Great War more. But one of the big differences you actually get, I mean, you put it again. So Feng Shao Gung's like, what was it called? Back to nineteen forty two. Yeah. Western Western acting, it's it's appalling. It's absolutely terrible. It's one of those ones like you know, Liam Neeson turning up in Korean films and just well, actually, it's Liam Neeson who's not the best actor anyway. Sorry, sorry, <laughs> I'm sure he, I'm sure he's listening to which I apologize. Sorry, big man, but you, you know what I mean though. There's a there's a huge difference. I mean, you watch Flowers of War and stuff like Christine Bale is still acting to the Christine Bale level of acting, whether whether you think that's good acting or not. You know what I mean? It's not like standout. Bad acting. And again, I, I mentioned like Chunk Kai goes killing me softly, just appalling acting. And which is yeah. quite, you know, so, the best one of all is quite common in, in films with Western actors by Asian directors. It's something uh, yeah, that we're, yeah. quite, we're quite used to, you know, we, mm-hmm. we've seen a lot. One of the interesting things about Christian Bale is, of course, yeah. that it's about the same conflict that's in Empire of the of Sun. Of course, yeah. You know, yeah, and that's, again, yeah. Yeah, I kind of, I start to feel like these links are quite <laughs> deliberate. From Chang uh, yeah. he's definitely kind of he's playing with this stuff that that falling a bit of Spielberg maybe then with Bridge of Spies as well then mm. bit of Schindler's List there's a bit of Schindler's List Flyers of War true I mean I mean in Spielberg's always going to be you know held up as one of the masters and stuff I mean as modelled as after Hitchcock as so much of his stuff is but it's absolutely I think you're right in that respect but I think you're what you were saying before is a hundred percent true like these are not these do feel like co-production, co-production. They don't feel that transplanted in mm. that respect. They do feel like a genuine effort for all the, you know, pluses and minuses and stuff. And and the problem with Flowers of War is just that by that stage it was too familiar a story. Yeah. And it was too, if anything, too just either Hollywood, Hollywood or China, Hollywood take on the subject after City of Life and Death and stuff, which is, you know, a masterpiece and very hard to watch yeah, and everything yeah, for him absolutely. but it's fantastically artistic as well as being narratively harrowing mm. and everything so Flowers of War coming after it yeah it feels pretty watered down and stuff Hi everyone it's Philip And today, my contribution is Xiang Yimou's 2016 film, The Great Wall. A co-production of American and Chinese studios, the film has Matt Damon inexplicably playing an Irishman with a Dutch-American accent, Pedro Pascal before he was the Mandalorian, and Willem Dafoe as a monk who perpetually looks nervous. I think the plot about 11th century Western soldiers of fortune stumbling into a war between the Chinese Imperial forces around the Great Wall and an alien army of monsters and having to help in their fight is immaterial. 
The reason to watch this movie is that Yamao doesn't have a plot so much as he has intricate action sequences strung together. There's spectacular fight scenes, and clearly Jing Tian is having fun with Andy Lau in their scenes with Damon and Pascal. But there's nothing anchoring the film together. There's a plot, but after a while, you sort of forget about it. You're mesmerized as rows of Chinese soldiers run in interlocking drills as they prepare for the next assault. You get really good character development as Tian and Damon have this great dance around each other, but then it's swept away with Matt's endless entertaining accent changes. Andy Lau and Zhang Hanyu give very measured, sagely turns, but in the end, it's always going to be about the pressures of the responsibilities to your soldiers, and the whole thing ends in a massive CG fest. So far, so Hollywood. But with an expertly tuned and crafted director's eye view of the proceedings. I guess I'm saying that The Great Wall is a mess, but it's a gloriously put together mess. Stunning cinematography and camera work might not always work, but in the hands of a director like Yimao, it will always get you over the finish line. Plus, you'll always giggle when you read from the director of Hero and House of the Flying Daggers on the Philips poster. But the, I mean, the, I didn't mind the Great Wall though. I didn't think it was bad or anything like that. I, I can, it's just got two massive glaring problems for especially for Chinese audiences like with the language because you get all these scenes which are basically had to be say like two or three times because you know Matt Damon says it in English and it gets translated to Chinese and the guy says something in Chinese gets translated back into English and the interpreter says it back to Matt Damon so everything is getting said like three or four times plus it's all subtitled so and it's a really hard thing to get around for like because you can't unless you just but the thing is, you, the because I mean, you do get that little trick where people start skipping the the sort of responses, and I've seen that in films. I where, agree, exactly, you know, and like. But actually, it's interesting that he did that in a more realistic it's way, realistic. and actually yeah. tried, even though they seem to be invaded by aliens, tried yeah. to make. He actually kind of went to that kind of weird detail of of these people don't understand each other. Yeah. You know, when you think about. You think about the wonderful film by Jackie Chan, yeah. Dragon Blade, where you've got. But they should have gone. They should have got it in like the Thirteenth Warrior, Antonio Banderas, everything like that he just like two minute montage sequence sitting around the fight. You know, he's like mm. the Arabian guy, Araban, who's been like grabbed by like the Vikings and stuff to go up there to solve some mad problems. And you got two minute montage of him sitting in the fire with them over a few nights. Got lots of close ups of him going hmm. Suddenly he starts shouting at them and swearing in their language, and they're like, "What? Well, how did you learn a language?" Like, I listened, you idiots! <laughs> Everyone loves it, man. Even they're happy. They're clapping Antonio Banderas. It's a great and very moving scene. Mm. They could have just done that for this film. I mean, it's Matt Damon, of course. Mm. He, he he learned Chinese yeah. in a second. Matt Damon. Matt Damon. Matt Damon. But he didn't, you know he's I'm sure he's done Mandarin in some other films, and he had his man from Game of Thrones in there and stuff like that, Pedro Pascal and. Well, Game of Thrones and The Mandalorian now. Well, I don't like Star Wars. I, won't speak, <laughs> I don't speak of it. But it's apart from that, and you and the awful generic creature design, which just pathetic. It's just ridiculous. It's just so, like you said, aliens. It's just nonsense. Yeah, but it's a pretty amiable film. There's nothing. There, there's nothing either. It's not like Matt Damon is the great white savior of China, and there's no like weird forced romance and stuff. And you do get nice scenes of him and Pedro Pascal just cutting around China on their horses, chatting <laughs> and stuff, which were quite nice. So it's not, I, and I did manage to see it in the big screen, which, well, as big a screen as Cineworld is, but it was, 
surprisingly not that bad because especially I'd seen it after I'd read so much damning stuff about it for months and it's not a great film but it's not it's not a bad film I don't I think. mean it's an attempt to make something that's the equivalent of the the Marvel yeah, you know yeah, all the kind of action films cowboys versus aliens and well, that wasn't bad from Cowboys mm. Aliens as well. But, but you're right, it was, it, was an, it was a genuine attempt to try and feel out how to sort of merge them. And it's no surprise, I guess, that Jiang Mo was the director for it, you know, in that respect. Um, I mean, it is back to the scale of the Olympics. and Yeah, you just yeah. substitute hundreds and thousands of drummers for like CGI nondescript aliens. But I had drummers on it as well. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure it right. has lots of dramas on that. Yeah, I remember there. it had some bungee jumping and stuff in there yeah, too, right? People yeah, jumping yeah, on stuff, which yeah. made zero sense. But it's just, <laughs> it was so similar as well to the you know the mummy one, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. Oh yes, you yeah. Jet Li and poor Brendan Fraser before he went mad off the rails and stuff. But it was the same thing, just like hordes of these CGI things rushing, mm. rushing against walls and stuff like that. So I think that it was the familiarity with it, it was just generic. I don't. There was nothing either culturally offensive about it and obviously like probably like a lot of Asian film fans in the West were up in arms against it and stuff so it was probably doomed from the start that's where the Meg succeeded because it was a different you know came the other way yeah took a Western thing to China and the British Bruce Willis you know Jason (laughs) Jason (laughs) great film the Meg I'll I'll, I'll never say anything bad about the Meg in that respect it's a co-production Mm. But, but yeah, it's no surprise that Jiang Mo is the man to try both the Flowers of War and this one, you know. Mm. And then we get a, a, a kickback to the Wuxia. We get Wuxia, something that, 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 that thematically is, is very much on similar ground to the Curse of the Golden Flower, and that it feels yeah. very, yeah. It, there's a lot of very, it, it, it feels like a a Shakespearean play. Yeah. Um, Curse of the Golden Flower was based on a Hong Kong play. True. But yes. it still has kind of play roots. Right. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, you know, and the very muted tones. Mm. Stylistically, the production design of Shadow is, is amazing. It's all yin and yang, yeah. black and white, all the way throughout, all yeah. the black and white paintings. The amount of kind of way that they, they pull that through is just yeah. incredible. <clears throat> And it's a it's a decent film as well. It's, a, it's okay. I was, I have to admit I'm not crazy about Shadow. I, I think that's one of the films where I, I and again to be honest, I, I was away when it was on at Late London Film Festival, mm-hmm. so I, I I saw it quite. I saw it when it was on Netflix. You know, to be yeah. honest, but that did feel like a film which was made very much more for a Western audience with this kind of everything with yin yang and everything, mm-hmm. was the concepts in it and the visual. It, it, it so much of it hark back to hero in terms of it but then put into the I mean visually it's stunning mm. but too much of that side of it was I don't know it was a bit too much for me it's not a bad film I just wasn't crazy yang about too. it oh god the yin yang master the yin yang master dream of eternity <laughs> the yin yang master dream of resurrect I don't know whatever man whatever. Too, too much <laughs> it would, if it came out it's better than those two though I'll say that I, those two yin yang master films are a bit pish but um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm judging against his standards and stuff, mm. obviously. Uh, and if I'd seen it on the big screen, I, I would have probably preferred it, I'm sure. But it just, it did feel more like going back to the well, mm-hmm. uh, especially after, because he, he got a lot of stinging criticism and the box office failure, the, the Great Wall. He was you know slagged off both in China and all around the world, pretty much. Well, like Matt Damon and Pedro Pascal kind of emerged, and probably Willem Dafoe only just remembered he was in that but, um, but he's, he's always lurking around in films 
uh, you know, he, I, I think he, he was probably more damaged by that in China, uh, even just reputation and stuff, because it had been built up for a long time uh, in terms of the budget and in terms of the prestige of the picture and stuff, and to not be well received in China, to not do well at the box office in China, and then to flop in the West as well was probably yeah. a big slap in the face. So I think Shadow, it, it felt a bit like double dipping, going back to the well, especially in terms of Hero. And I still, I still like Hero quite a lot. So, you know, I I wasn't crazy about Shadow. Mm-hmm. And then we move on to what, a film that we both unfortunately <laughs> haven't seen saw, which was, was One Second. <sighs> one Second. Which yeah. ran into a few problems. It ran into one or, one or two issues, yeah. One of the... Many technical issues that the full <laughs> films nowadays. <laughs> it's such a shame. Like, you, you really get, you're just about to screen at the Berlin Film Festival, then you find out your film doesn't work for technical issues. And instead of somebody having a backup DCP or a ProRes file, you just have to pull the film. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that's all it was. Like these... <laughs> That's ridiculous. I, I don't know. I mean, it was obviously they went back and then allegedly reshot large parts of the film, finally got released in China. A long Late time last ago. Year. Yeah. 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 And Quite recently. With no fanfare and uh, I didn't read anything great about it and stuff. So it's a shame because it did, it sounded more, it did again sound like Another sort of direct, like cine- cinema reference type film, just unfortunately was set during the Cultural Revolution and stuff. So it, it sounded a bit like like cinema paradiso style, and everything mm. like that. So it, it genuinely, but sort of tied into like a sort of more like a farm and peasant background and stuff. So it, it really actually sounds like an interesting film. But I have to be honest, I, I wouldn't watch it in its new reshot form. It's it's an interesting. I mean, and I think this is one of the difficulties of, of being a film director now. And, yeah. And, you know, and it's not like um, Shane hasn't run the gamut of being in and out of favour about, you know. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Any phrase, but tackling something of, of that era as well is something you surely would but have to be incredibly careful about. But, it's still, but that's the madness of the Chinese system because he would have had to have got, the script would have been approved. Mm-hmm. The production plan would have been approved. The production shoot start would have been approved. The production finish would have been approved. So everything would have been passed at every stage. And then whatever mm-hmm. happened to make it, you know, be, okay, go ahead, you can put it in Berlin. But then to be withdrawn is, you know, that that's where the problem, I mean, it's a longer subject for a, a podcast on a more secure channel. But that's the, <laughs> that's the big problem with that, that system, because you can go through so many stages yeah. of getting approval. And then suddenly for investors, especially that like your project gets yanked at the last second uh, without any reason. So it's, you know, it's not like this film operated in a complete vacuum for, you know, however long. No, like a year no, and a half. because that can't happen. That is absolutely, can't do, yeah, it, exactly. it just it, it literally cannot happen. Exactly. And especially not for a director like Jang Mao. No, no, exactly. It's not like <laughs> you've been operating mad under the radar if you're shooting the scenes in the countryside that are handheld, you know, it's just, it, it's a shame because I will never see that film in, in its proper state now and everything and I'm not really interested in seeing the revision version I, I don't know the details how much actually shot exactly what they changed but if it's enough to do reshoots rather than removing a couple of scenes yeah. you know it's something very significant and that's it's, it's, a, that's it's, a, it's an ideological yeah. shift yeah. in, in yeah. the film so it's I don't know <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not even sure of the exact timeline of that and Cliff Walkers in that respect because they're you know, one second was supposed to be twenty twenty and Cliff Walker's twenty twenty one, so he must have been working on pre production 
I imagine mm-hmm. a lot of because Cliff Walkers must have had a lot of pre-production. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for the you know you said the sets, the costumes, the everything. So um, I, I, it's not even like Cliff Walkers was I deciding to do something safe after the problems mm-hmm. in that sense. He must have been working with Cliff Walkers already. So yeah, yeah. Um, and you know we've said he has his new one coming out um, under the light, which is supposed to be like a noir crime thriller and everything, but. It looks from the trailer at least. It, it looks like another pretty cinematic, cinema lover kind of type of film. So, and mm. if one second is like a cinema type thing, which has fallen foul, and as we what we said about Cliff Walkers, and then maybe this, and maybe we are seeing him. In a way, I think Spielberg kind of has done some of his later career stuff as well. He he's been focusing more on the, like the cinematic aspects of his films. Yeah, both, both like visually and like cinema literate. I hate that fucking. It's a horrible term to use, but you know what I mean, though. It's not. I don't. It's not meta. It's not referential. It's just somebody who's loving the cinema, and it's just. I, th- I think, in a sense, you could almost relate this back to the Olympics part of it, though. It is mm. creating a spectacle it's for an audience. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, it's 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 perhaps less about creating a film that is the, the other virtues of a film that is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got a it's got a great story. It's it's about something really vital and important. This is about yeah. praying something for the audience, but in in a, in a good way. Mm-hmm. You know that that and and you know he is getting to that age. You know, of, you know the the Spielbergs and whoever's. You know, I've yeah. I've wanted to create something quite often quite big, but just yeah. so that you can enjoy on absolutely. You know, in terms of the filmmaking, absolutely every level you can enjoy it. Sure, sure. I, I think, and, and you know, you can maybe set a bit with some. You know, I mean, Johnny Toe's slowing down a lot more. It, just in terms, of, I don't mean on a personal level, but just in terms <laughs> of his output and stuff. And I think you see that in quite a few directors as well. And it, it's a nice thing to see. You know, well, I mean, they're, I mean, really, I, they're really embracing. Massive, I mean, it, it's probably. I mean, it, it's because of the production yeah. schedules of some of this stuff outside of. Yeah. What he did for the Great War. You know, he's probably working on a lot of films at the same time, but the, the, actually at the moment, yeah, has been it's, it's ended up, especially with the big delay between, but even then, it's not that big a delay between Shadow and One Second because of the, the, the delay. Yeah, it's, it's actually, years, been, yeah. you know, it's a film a year is actually not, it's, it's quite good, of especially for Man for its advanced advantage, yes. and the man who's got 30 children, whatever name it is. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we didn't come on to that controversy, but that's probably uh, for another podcast. <laughs> I, there's not much to say about it. Apparently, he he got you know he had however many children he had, where he wasn't supposed to have. He paid the fines. He couldn't. It Is wasn't. it the same number as Boris? Well, Boris doesn't know who. Oh, yeah. well, either way, I, I, I would vote for Johnny Mo before I vote for that. Anyway, Boris <laughs> You make sure you leave this on the podcast. Let our boots be known. <laughs> So I'm sure he's listening. I want him to feel the pain of not being liked by Eastern kids. Damn you, Boris, and your Everything. John Lewis hating ways. <laughs> it's too fancy for me anyway. But uh, but no, I, I I wish we could see one second, and I'm looking forward to very much to seeing uh, Under the Light. And I really, mm. as, I, as I mentioned before, I just hope it'll be a time where it can tag into some kind of festival circuit. Yeah. And everything like that. It's supposed to be coming out in China in a few months, so it might make Venice... And if cinemas are open over here after that, that'll be a big benefit to that. And mm. It would be a real shame not to see that getting some kind of like international release in the you West. In the moment where... You outside know, of the US. Yeah. And, you know, I mean like European West, I guess. And, you know, just in terms of, you know, we're all a little bit desperate to... Well, in the UK at least, we don't have drive-ins. <laughs> so we're all a bit desperate to see films on a big screen again rather than That's very just true. at home on, a, on, the, on the telly and laptop that we've been using for every part of our daily lives <laughs> <laughs> no no for sure and, and it would be great to see these films I'm not sure who would 
there aren't really any companies I can see releasing a, a sort of proper Chinese film or anything in the UK, you know, at the moment. Well, you know, like, um, you know, we have like commercial, you know, these, and that's what yeah. I'm saying but about Zhang Mo. He's sort of, he, it's, we have companies who are releasing an art house type of film and everything, mm. but like Cliff Walkers, it's not an art house, but it's not for a Western audience as yeah. well. The, like I was saying, if it had been played at Cannes, it would have probably been taken as an art house film. Or if it played in Berlin, it would have been taken as a semi-art house film. Mm. Partly just because of the subtitles, but um, th- there's not really that... Th- there's a strong market in the UK for commercial Chinese films pitched to Chinese audiences, and there's kind of a market for like art house films and stuff. But this, his kind of stuff, falls somewhere in the middle. You know, even with like the Great Wall and stuff like that, when it was released, you know, obviously just you know through normal Hollywood channels, it was a not really a great fit for a film which was partly subtitled. No, so for something like Cliff Walkers, um, it's an odd, fit. you know, it, mm. it's, it's a strange fit. But if it actually had some festival play behind it, then that's where you might see some of like whether it's the, I mean, Arrow are kind of not doing the theatricals now, but you know, some of those kind of companies who who went for those kind of like you know midway films every yeah. time. It's I don't know. It's an interesting area of the market. It's a tough one to play in. But if his films were out there getting on the festival circuit, then we might see some of them getting here. You know. Yeah. Well, Cliff Walkers is in cinemas now in China, Singapore, US, <laughs> Canada, and Australia and New Zealand. Uh, released by CMC Pictures. Now, yes. as we've said, there's there's no dates of time recording for the UK. Uh, which means it, it won't happen. They don't, they don't it's it's not going to happen now. No, they, they, don't, really. <laughs> they don't retrospectively release stuff. But we keep our fingers crossed for Under under the Light, I guess, is the next one. Mm. So we'd like a good trailer. Good trailer. That's it for now. Don't forget you can find all of our previous episodes on Apple, Amazon Music, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe and you'll never miss an episode. But for now... Hey, cheers. Cheers. cheers to it.